0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Voice of the People Radio, by and for the ninety-nine percent, for February nineteenth, twenty twenty-two. And we, our intro music, is the iconic and always relevant "Democracy" by Leonard Cohen. And we like that very much because it exemplifies all the things that we're trying to do here on Saturday afternoons. I am. I continue to be Jim, the sound, sound guy, in the absence of Mick, the sounder, sound guy. (laughs) And uh, you are listening to KFGM 105.5 Missoula Community Radio, if you're listening on the radio, live streaming, if you're on the internet, on 105.5 KFGM, no punctuation, .org. And now on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under voice of the people radio Buy and for the 99%. Now, the talent on the show today is Jim Liska, who's in Livingston, right, Jim? Yes, I am. Okay, and Mark Anderlick, who remains in Missoula. Yep, holding down the fort here. Right, in in hmm. the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. And we're recording the show from the comfort of our own domiciles, which in Mark's case is in the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. How about you, Jim?
1: I'm broadcasting from the ancestral homeland of the Crow. or Oh,
0: Oh, gotcha. And I'm in North Central Alabama. And we've got a theme going now for, for Native American groups with a name that begins with a C. And where I am, there were formerly and still may be people that didn't manage a chance to be on the Trail of Tears the choctaws, the creek, the chickasaws, the cherokees, the Chattahoochees, and coming in at number 6, the koshatas. So this this was a real hopping place in the 18th century and earlier.
2: Yeah. Well, and despite all of our deepest wishes, the pandemic is not over yet. We need to hang in there still by doing our part by wearing masks when you're inside in public by frequent washing of your hands and by getting vaccinated. This show is still pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together and every time is different (laughs) uh, (laughs) without, without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And once again we give old Mick a shout out. Hey Mick.
0: We're missing you Mick. Hope you're fine wherever you are. So our theme this week is Black History Month. So, Mark, how did that come about? How did it become Black History Month?
2: Well, um, one uh, note first. As regular listeners know, we like to Mm -hmm. use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week and our themes. Uh, Our fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, has suggested that we include a note about Wikipedia as follows. Each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. That said, according to our collective wisdom at Wikipedia, Black History Month was first proposed by Black educators and the Black United Students at Kent State University in February 1969. The first celebration of Black History Month took place at Kent State a year later, from January 2nd to February 28th, 1970. Six years later, Black History Month was being celebrated all across the country in educational institutions, centers of Black culture, and community centers, both great and small when President Gerald Ford recognized Black History Month in 1976 during the celebration of the United States Bicentennial. He urged Americans to, quote, seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of Black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history, end quote. In the Black community, Black History Month was met with enthusiastic response. It prompted the creation of Black History Clubs and increased in interest among teachers and interest from progressive whites, end quote.
0: That first Black History Month celebrated at Kent State was just nine months before the Ohio National Guard killed four and wounded nine Kent State students protesting U.S. involvement in the war in Vietnam on the campus.
2: Yes, it was. It was even less than nine months. It was only about two or three months later Um, Oh my gosh! So so, you know, um, I don't know any story connecting the two. I'm sure there is, but uh, I do not know that. So
1: well, I might interject that. Sure, it might be the fact that the Black Americans, representing at that time about 30 percent of the American population, were being recruited to fight the Vietnam War disproportionately. Oh, hmm. I, I absolutely, I think that's a connection.
2: Yeah, that's definitely a connection. Yep.
0: So, yeah, absolutely, especially at that time in the war, uh, lots of complaints that Mr. McNamara was emphasizing, uh, you know, bringing in more people from from the lower rungs of of the of the enlistment or economic criteria, <laughs> economic yeah thank you I didn't want to be that smug but uh you're absolutely right and thank you for saying it for me so uh, so why is Black History Month important to begin with is it is it related to all the fuss about so-called critical race theory Oh, this will be good.
2: Yeah, and that's a, that's a great question, Jim. Um, the objection to critical race theory is just another in a long line of efforts by racists to either erase Black history or to highly propagandize it in the U.S. Um, Keisha N. Blaine, uh, for example, writing in the February 18th edition of The Nation magazine, puts it this way. While the obsession over critical race theory is a new manifestation It represents long-standing efforts to keep Black history and the perspectives of Black writers out of the classroom. For many conservatives, the attack on critical race theory is rooted in a desire to shield their children from the uncomfortable aspects of history and evade sensitive topics such as racism, white supremacy, and inequality. As this wave of anti-Blackness and anti-intellectualism grows, Black educators and their allies must be prepared to oppose these forces, building on a long tradition of Black protest. For as long as white politicians have employed these tactics, Black educators in the United States have vigorously resisted. Through a myriad of strategies, including creative lesson plans and the production of anti-racist books and articles, Black educators have worked to counter the spread of misinformation and ensure that students have access to texts, and perspectives that represent the diversity of the nation and the world," end quote.
0: Does this opposition by Black educators go far back in our history?
2: Well, Blaine recounts examples of opposition to racist portrayals of Blacks in their history well before the Civil War. She recounts this as an example. In February, 1926, historian Carter G. Woodson, known as the father of Black history, devised a strategy to address the failure to teach Black history in classrooms across the nation. By first establishing, quote, Negro History Week, end quote, Woodson provided an avenue for educators to recognize and celebrate the history of people of African descent in the United States. In so doing, he disrupted educational norms shaped by white supremacy and anti-Blackness. Woodson and members of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, the organization he had established several years earlier, created and distributed books, lessons, lesson plans, and other curriculum materials to aid teachers across the nation. Within five years of the program's creation, 80% of Black high schools in the United States were celebrating Negro History Week. According to Jarvis R. Givens, author of Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching, Woodson's mission as a scholar was influential and made possible by the pedagogical work of Black school teachers. These educators had instructed and prepared Woodson's generation after the end of legal slavery, and a new generation now risked their own personal safety to defy the accepted curriculum by implementing Negro History Week lessons, influencing generations of scholars and activists to follow, end quote including those at Kent State University and those today
0: fighting against uh, biased curriculum.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Blaine continues, uh, quote, this tradition coalesced into the dynamic field of Black studies during the 1960s and 1970s. As Abdul Akalamat, one of the founders of Black studies, points out in the history of Black studies, his book, the field's growth is directly tied to the pioneering work of scholars like Woodson and W.E.B. DuBois. The works of Black educators, combined with other forces, including the civil rights and Black power movements, as well as the vital intellectual space created by historically Black colleges and universities, provided the catalyst for the establishment of Black Studies programs and departments. Freedom schools such as those established by organizations like the Student Nonviolent Nonviolent Coordinating Committee known as SNCC and the rise of black power ideology fundamentally shaped black college students and challenged mainstream university curriculums on college campuses and beyond.
0: Yeah, now Abdul is the is the guy that wrote the book on the history of black mm-hmm. studies, right? It was mm-hmm. That was just published in October.
2: Yeah. And he was also I'm eager to
0: get a copy of that.
2: He's also one of the uh, founders of that, the, mo- you know, of the modern movement anyway. Oh, great guy to cope from. There you go. Thanks for bringing him into the
0: conversation. And, uh, and there is an interesting local part of this story of black studies programs.
2: Oh, quite right, Jim. <clears throat> Believe it or not, the University of Montana established the second Black Studies program west of the Mississippi River. Established by Dr. Ulysses Doss in 1968, it had a certainly a serendipitous beginning. Um, th- this, uh, this was posted on the University of Montana Black Student Union webpage. Um, mm-hmm. Ulysses Doss tells the story like this. UM students marched into the office in 1968 into the office of President Robert Panzer to demand a black faculty member. Doss happened to be on campus at the time, and when Panzer offered him a job, he reluctantly accepted. Accept Doss said, "It was obvious President Panzer was under great pressure, and he didn't quite know <laughs> what to do with me, said Doss. He suggested I could be coach of the football team or be an instructor of humanities." I posted on my door that very day, director of black studies. And yeah, that
0: that is a seminal moment in um, the history of education in this country, because um, not many football coaches are humanities authorities. (laughs) And uh, and, and there's the meme going around. Um, What we have in this country today is a result of football coaches teaching civics.
2: Well, you're in Alabama, so I think you. Would <laughs> be that.
0: Yeah, um, I set myself up for that. That would that, that, that would that, that was a segue. That so that yes. was that was your laugher line. Okay. Yeah. Um. We well, we have a U.S. senator that doesn't know anything about government and only knows how to put X's and O's on a chalkboard.
2: And his name is Tommy. Yeah, <laughs> Senator Tommy. Yeah. Well, un- unfortunately uh, Dr. Doss passed away this past August at the age oh. of 88 here in Missoula. Um, and, uh, uh, and and I had the privilege to work with him very occasionally on on certain things around nonviolent action. Um, so uh, so that's uh, that actually the the repercussions of some of his... Uh, work here in missoula has been he recruited people from uh from big cities to come to university of montana uh black students and so in the middle of very white montana <laughs> so uh um i think that there was a lot of uh to be gained from uh and learned by all all around um, I'm, at least i hope so and uh and he was Mark, uh, he was certainly um, a very popular teacher. He he was voted oh great at one point, you know, the best teacher of the year kind of thing at the University of Montana. So um, so he's Mark,
1: a, I assume that his recruiter recruitments were not just athletes.
2: No, in fact, none of them were athletes. He did he was not an athletic recruiter, uh, and so um, even even with the offer of being a football coach. Uh, At the University of Montana, which actually probably, I'm sure, would have been a first too, but uh, uh, he made the smarter choice, I think.
0: That's, isn't that the truth? Uh, (laughs) In every sense of the word.
1: (laughs) It it can't be assumed that every Black educator is
2: a football coach. Yeah. And that's, that, that was kind of his. Or
0: a music instructor. A music. (laughs) Right, there you go. Well, and there's a, that's an
2: area you know. Boy, there's
0: a segue. There's a yeah. segue, yes.
2: Yes. So, well, one of the things we want to do in for Black History Month is look at jazz. And we are so fortunate to have with us someone who is uh like you know an expert and uh in Jim Liska. So Jim, why yeah. don't you take it away? Well well. Thank you very much, and, and uh, I, I want to say that what my
1: my words are going to be over the next the course of the next few minutes are um, represent a, a mere overview of the history of jazz, which goes back a long time. But I appreciate the the uh, opportunity to share some of my knowledge and, and uh, experiences. And, Um, And I should start with my background. I had a unique pleasure of writing about jazz for such publications as the LA Daily News, the LA Times, Playboy, and Downbeat Magazine. I was first introduced to jazz by my father, who was an ardent fan of music from the big band or swing era, the music of Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Fletcher Henderson. As well as that of Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw, played throughout the house, or the houses, I should say, that I grew up in. <laughs> and the singers, Nacking Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, Peggy Lee sang to us as well. Peggy Lee? Hi fi.
0: Yeah, we gotta so have some music
1: from Haley Jackson. Yeah. Jackson was one of my dad's favorite. She brought, brought gospel and spirituals to our ears. My father was not a musician or historian. He just loved music that bookended the years before and after World War II. Mm -hmm. It was the music of his coming of age and it became the music of my youth. With that listening background, instrumental education and an instrumental education from the time I was about five years old, a love of writing and led to my being somebody to write about champion jazz music, which is widely recognized as America's original art form.
2: So, uh, you know, where did jazz begin and when? It's hard to pinpoint, but
1: A jazz timeline might begin in 1619, the year the first slaves were brought to America. Their native music would not have been left on the the shores of Africa, but would have found expression in the fields, southern plantations. In 1817, the city of New Orleans dedicated Congo Square as an official place for music and dance of slaves. It would be almost eighty years before Scott Joplin wrote his first ragtime composition, and cornetist Buddy Bolden formed his band.
2: Hmm. Wow! And so there was a the city of New Orleans dedicated a place for music and dance of slaves. What what's the story behind that? Well, they I I
1: I can't really know for sure. Yeah, but I think they found the music to be entertaining. And people of all color could come and listen and watch the music and dance. And it wasn't many years later that I think it was called Liberty Square was also founded in New Orleans, New Orleans, to celebrate jazz, not just you know not not just um, native music of Africans.
0: No kidding. And and that is Congo Square, the river, not Conga Square, the Kongo percussion Square, instrument. Right, it's it's that's uh, amazing.
1: Off the beaten path of the of the uh, tourist, you know, it's far it's far from Bourbon Street. Hmm. And you. The last time I was there was many years ago, but there were countless jazz clubs in the in the buildings surrounding Con- Congo Square. And, and Buddy, B- Buddy Bolden, who I mentioned, mm-hmm. was, was in a way, you know, he, he established a lot of, of the parameters of jazz through his cornet. Unfortunately, he was hospitalized for, psych, for psychotic disorders. Uh, and, and nothing he ever, he was never recorded. Oh what so there were what, was very he, few yeah. who knew anything about his music.
0: Um, was, was he around in the age when, when recordings are being done? No, it was before. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Well, if
1: the technology might have existed. Okay. That I'm not sure, but he was not included, if it was. Gotcha. But, but, you know, the, the thing is that all, with all of that in mind, we can explore the history of jazz as being concurrent with the mm-hmm. history of black Americans. Jazz and not so few words. As I said earlier, this is an mm-hmm. overview of broader. It is a melding of field hollers, African rhythms, rural blues, gospel, and ragtime. It didn't, it didn't emerge intact. From the delta and float lazily up the Mississippi River to St. Louis and further to Davenport, Iowa, to find Big Bird. Number one, nobody floats lazily upstream. <laughs> <laughs> oh. You're
2: paddling furiously.
1: <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. That's right.
1: I, I'm not sure how that would have worked, but that became yeah. a part of the mythology. Mm-hmm. But. The music did involve in and from those places. Gotcha. By the late 1920s, Louis Armstrong made his earliest recordings, including West End Blues, Mm -hmm. a groundbreaking effort that exhibits an easy blend of ragtime and the blues. I was in my late 20s, well versed in a lot of jazz, before I heard this recording. And it was absolutely transformative.
0: No kidding. You know, um, full disclosure here. When I was in high school, I read everything Nat Hentoff wrote that I could get my hands on. And this is news to me that West End Blues was, uh, was such a uh, you know a, a, a seminal piece of work.
1: Oh, you know, it was, it was recorded in 1928. Mm-hmm. And my mentor, Leonard Feather, told me about it. And said it's what changed his life, and 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 made him move from London to the United States just in pursuit Mm -hmm. of this
2: strange music. Hmm. Wow! Yeah. Well, go ahead. We we can let's put let's let's give that a listen.
1: the song that had never been done before mm. Louis Armstrong was a, an unbelievable talent he recognized yes. when he performed he, he was more than just an innovative jazz trumpet player, he was an entertainer mm. and he, he was somewhat dismissed by a lot of people as, as an Uncle Tom uh, which, which is just so pathetically wrong.
0: But I a- think in that era, if you got along and had a, a place in, in uh, you know, Caucasian culture, it was presumed you must have sold out, which is tragic. Yeah. Well, you know, Stephen Fetchit got the same thing. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, you know, a, a lot of black artists, period, and and Louis, It should be noted here. I always love this because I'm Jewish, and Louis Armstrong always wore a Star David. Oh, the reason was that there was a, a Jewish family in in the at the Latin Quarter of New Orleans who kind of mm-hmm. took him in and sponsored him, and and Satchmo always said that. There was no way he could have done anything without the help of that family. Mm. And yeah. that's why he wore the starved David.
2: Yeah, he, good for him. He he certainly is a giant of American artists. I mean, like oh, yeah. of, of any kind. <laughs> it, it, just, right. a, and he he how many decades did he make music? I mean, it it eight. Yeah, it's just he's just astonishing, um, and,
0: and to most so people, cool. he's just the guy that sang "Hello Dolly" and and played well,
1: maybe, and played maybe, a
0: horn maybe, a horn solo.
1: Maybe better known, Jim, is his is his uh, rendition of "What a Wonderful World." Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah! Excellent point. Yeah, that
1: that draws in people mm-hmm. younger than my children. Well, that my grandchildren know that song yeah yeah because it's been used so many ways in commercials and you know tv shows whatever but um oh well (laughs) (laughs) that's
2: a great his rendition is the the rendition of the song i mean Mm -hmm.
1: oh yeah it's and and continuing on a little bit with the with the sense of the blues which, which was what you know Armstrong's piece was Count Basie one of the one of the um finest band leaders oh yes you know a member of that swing era he came out of Kansas City right become a big part of my listening life I was so delighted to have gotten to know him
0: during my jazz writer yeah Kansas City was great for producing um (laughs) Uh, you know, Savants—that's Miles Davis' home too. Well, my, Miles actually came from um, St. Louis, but the, oh, he did. Yes. Yeah, oh, St. that darn River City thing. But yeah, thanks for pointing that out. But the, but the, the
1: the swing era or big band era, depending on you know, oh. it's not, they not. Yeah, it was from, on his home was on
0: Kansas Street in St. Louis. Oh.
1: <laughs> anyway, the swinging era produced tunes from Tin Pan Alley and mm-hmm. the Broadway stage, which went on to form the, the great American music book. They were, they, they, but it was first and foremost dance music. You could hear in the ballrooms from Harlem to Pittsburgh, to Chicago to San Francisco. Benny Goodman, the Chicago-born clarinetist, led a big band. They had a weekly show on NBC radio called Let's Dance. The band toured throughout the Midwest to meet your audiences because the, the show didn't get there before they went to bed. By the time, by the time Goodman and Company got to the Palomar Ballroom in Los Angeles, the joint was jumping and Goodman was dubbed the King of Swing. Oh. His primary arranger was Fletcher Henderson, a black band leader who who sold his arrangements to Goodman. And Goodman then went on to be the first among to lead an integrated band, featuring the talents of the pianist Teddy Wilson, vibraphonist Lionel Hampton, guitarist Charlie Christian, the singer Billy Holiday, among many others. Hmm. Basie's band, built on the ashes of Vinnie Moten's band, was essentially a big band blues band, as illustrated by this recording of his theme song, One O'Clock Jump. It is a swing 12-bar improvised blues. Thank you. Segregation in American society was also evidenced in jazz. Black musicians played the great halls and nightclubs, but had to enter through the back doors and kitchens to play for whites only audiences. In Los Angeles, there were two unions, one black, one white, and they didn't join together until the middle 1950s, about 1954 if I recall. Benny Goodman, among many others, canceled tours throughout the South because of Jim Crow policies. If his musicians couldn't stay in the hotels he stayed at, he wanted nothing to do with that group or those towns. In Los Angeles, Joy- Jazz Royalty worked at the Ambassador Hotel, but couldn't stay there. They stayed at the Dunbar Hotel on South Central Avenue, where, as a byproduct of segregation, grew an after-hours club scene that featured the best player players regardless of color. And white audiences flocked there.
2: Hmm. So, sort of a uh, <laughs> inadvertent uh, loss of business there by enforcing racial segregation, I guess. And- Or actually a gain of business. Well, for, yeah, for those, right. Well, depending on your view, right? That's
1: right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) uh, South Central did great. You know, there there are wonderful pictures of famous Hollywood actors slumming, as it were, in in the South Central Avenue clubs, where people like Nat King Cole held court. He owned his own club there. I mean, there, there were many, it was it was great. But anyway, we, we should, I should move on a little bit. Billie Holiday, the great singer, was no stranger to racism. She, under, under arrest for narcotics possession, she was handcuffed to her hospital bed. Hmm. She was 44 when she died, handcuffed to that bed in 1959. It was the same year that earlier she had recorded Strange Fruit, a song about the lynching of blacks.
3: From the poplar tree
1: things about jazz seems to be that its entire history is available on record. It's not, not counting the 1619 reference that I made earlier. It's, it's basically a music that's taken place in about 140 years. And you know, we, we've talked about the swing era and, and Louis Armstrong, we've become a culture, art, art, cultural icon. And we've spoken about the influence of blues. My approach to jazz started with the swing era, as I mentioned earlier, from my father, and it jumped to the free jazz music of Ornette Coleman and Cecil Taylor in a finger snap. It was ba- that music was based on dissonance and compelling rhythmic patterns that were th- that nobody had ever heard. And then I went back to the basics of what became Dixie or Louis Armstrong. Mm -hmm. It was only then that I fully embraced the music of Bebop, created by the saxophonist Charlie Parker and the trumpeter Dizzy Gillespie, along with Thelonious Monk and several others. Bop was a reactionary art form to the swing era music. It was largely improvisational rather than just eight or 16 bars of a solo. And its rhythms featured offbeat nuances that had never been heard before. It dominated the jazz clubs along 52nd Street in New York, where those with one foot staunchly in the swing era earned the derogatory name Moldy
2: Figs. (laughs) So so it was it was a rebellion against the swing era the bebop and um it, is there um i mean is is that something that's uh that people grew tired of the swing um the big band swing sound oh. or
1: no, no mark I think the musicians grew tired of
2: it yeah okay the
1: audiences you know each form of jazz developed its own audience Mm -hmm. and I I don't think you know my my dad quickly embraced the music of Parker and Gillespie but he didn't forsake you know Basie and Ellington right right you know which I think will lead to a point I, I want to make in a few minutes about it all exists together right but bebop was short-lived in its in its initial sense, and quickly was expanded to include hard or to 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 uh, yeah to include harba, which was decidedly more rhythmic and driving. Its proponents were the pianist, Horace, Horace Silver, and drummer Art Blakely. But less mm-hmm. is the Monk. month. This is straight, no chaser part of that era.
2: I, I, I love this song. <laughs> I always have loved this song. <laughs> Mark, if
1: I had a soundtrack to my life, it would be Straight No Chaser. <laughs> it's, it's unpredictable. It's wonderful. It yeah. swings. It puts a little tap in your step. You no. know, it's, what, what, mm. Who's on, it's not to like one of the curious things about jazz is that none of its movements have disappeared. Traditional jazz that most that mostly associated with New Orleans is widely practiced. Big band swings found its home in high school and college music right. programs, yeah. as well as on the festival stages around the world. Bebop lives, modernists continue to stretch the limits, of the listeners' imaginations. Miles Davis' Kind of mm-hmm. Blue, recorded in 1959, continues to sell. Mm-hmm. It, I believe it's the best-selling jazz album ever. Mm-hmm. Followed, oddly enough, by Dave Brubeck's Take Five. Mm-hmm. John Coltrane's A Love Supreme it, it is one of the most magical pieces of music ever recorded, and it continues to mm-hmm. attract audiences. Fusion jazz had its beginning in the 1970s with Miles Davis at the helm, working with such modernists as Chick Herbie Hancock, Joe Zollinger, and Wayne Shorter. The letter of tomb, sorry, right. letter of two. <laughs> Went on to form Weather Report.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. A, a band, a band I I knew all those guys. I, I wrote once that it was a not merely a fusion band, because nothing could be compared to it. It was the leader in a field of one. <laughs> I don't know there's higher praise. Yeah. Unique. By the Miles Davis Quintet, featuring Wayne Shorter, one of the founders of Weather Report, Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, and Tony Williams. This is from 1963, which was a long time ago.
5: Let's welcome Miles Davis and the Quintet.
0: Yeah, I I remember this era now. I went I went to see Herbie Hancock perform in Philadelphia, when, after he did um, Watermelon Man, which was, a, oh, yeah. was was a top forty hit. That was total crossover. Mm-hmm. You know, Mongo Santa Maria was also really popular then. But um, that's Latin stuff. I don't know whether you want to go there. And uh, Tony Williams I know really well as you know he and um, John McLaughlin. Did some albums together.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So Tony, I, I knew him briefly, and, and he he wasn't very much older than me when I started listening to him with Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. He was seventeen when he joined Miles' band, and I was about fourteen. <laughs> and yeah. you, you know, it's kind of there's an irony there that, you know, he went on to create music that I had to convince my music, band music people in high school to even listen to.
2: Yeah, but, that that brings up an interesting thing. There there's, was a lot of pushback against jazz like almost always, right? In, in terms of acceptance by, you know, critics or the you know uh the general population much less rate record producers and you know and their ilk well well mark you know j- jazz is a was
1: a popular form for very few people <laughs> it was it was briefly popular during the swing era and, and and that is when you know and, and yet there is a long it's obviously it's fair, it's over. but yet there is a long history of the music in the ensuing years,' about eight or nine decades. When, when it stopped becoming popular music, I believe was when the music no longer was something you could dance to.
4: Mm. It
1: was it, there, there was no. Nobody was compelled to dance to it. In -hmm. fact, it was discouraged. That's when jazz grew into an art form. Right, moving from the night, the smoky nightclubs. Always got to add that smoky part.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Give some atmosphere to
0: the Exactly, cloudy atmosphere. Cloudy,
1: cloudy, yes. (laughs) (laughs) To the concert hall, the tunes of Tin Pan Alley were largely replaced by original compositions right songs that were unfamiliar to listeners and wouldn't attract them necessarily right because they didn't know how to identify when my wife and i were first dating and i was going out three four nights five nights a week to jazz clubs and and she was my my date i i was really cheap i was having somebody else pay for that
2: but, <laughs> now, you know, it out, right? <laughs> now it comes out right
1: mm-hmm. it's way too late um uh, <laughs> jerry my wife jerry was not much impressed by the music but she was impressed by singers oh. and sarah vaughn and ella oh and yes carmen McRae and all these all these what and joe williams who was unbelievable and, and, and uh, Mel Torme, what, what Jerry found out was a lesson to me was that singers had to sing the song at the beginning. So the, the melody was established. Huh. And then everybody went wherever they wanted. And that was the only way my wife could make sense of it. She needed that starting point, where she could embrace the improvisations.
2: Hmm. Interesting, yeah. I sort of yeah. pick, oh, I, oh, I was just I was me just going to say that um, I've I've long been interested in jazz, and it seemed like, but I think I came to it through Weather Report, uh, as a matter oh, of fact. Yeah. Oh, and. Sure. Uh, Um, and it, it just really intrigued me that it was not kind of, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I graduated high school in 76. And so probably, you know, that time the rock and roll was getting a little stale and, and, uh, not had its vibrancy as it had, you know, in the late sixties, early seventies. And I don't know if that's why I started listening to it or not, but I was, uh, I thought it was really smart and um, interesting and you could almost listen to it. Like I, I was taught how to listen to classical music that mm-hmm. um, and there was a, usually a very complicated and, but yet um, kind of re- re- repeated uh, variation on a theme, just like, just like uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, right? That, um <laughs> And you could get lost in, in and it comes back to the theme. I, I always, I, I've always found that to be really um, uh, amazing and, and 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 lovely to listen to.
1: Well, you know, Weather Report was an unbelievably wonderful band. That that I mean, Zawinul and Wayne Shorter drew on their deep you know, jazz roots going back all the way to Bebop and through the, the times with Miles and Herbie Hancock. And and they created a, a, a music that was appealing and creative that maybe we wouldn't have expected from anybody in the rock world because the level of musicianship was not there. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I need to kind of talk about the fact the story of jazz goes on and on. But it, it, it needs nurturing
4: mm-hmm.
1: in our schools, especially. I'm well aware of the fears some have of critical race theory, which started the show at the top of the hour. But, but it's not... That that theory is not taught in public schools. That's it, taught only right. at the collegiate level, right? Which, which, I'm I'm sorry, I don't understand why people are opposed to knowledge, and uh, <laughs> our history. Um, and, and but you know, the education is 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 important. I don't suggest that we endeavor to turn our. Children into jazz musicians, God forbid.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> nobody can, would ever get any sleep.
1: <laughs> how much employment can we stand? Mm-hmm. But I, I believe we should develop a unit of study that would expose students to the music, our, our music, mm. the music mm-hmm. America, and it's and it's very rich heritage and history to me, just in closing.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, don't stop. I'm loving this this, Jim. Jim.
1: (laughs) To me jazz is music that reflects American history. Exactly. It is is ingrained in the the, the people we brought here Against their will, and sold into slavery, that created not only the music, but but the American, but the essentials of American cuisine. We can go that far. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. The masters threw them the, the 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 ends of whatever food they didn't want, and it created. Cuisine that America strives for. We want to eat that stuff. We, we want that barbecue. We want those ribs. We, we <laughs> want the corn pone. But more important, I suppose, is the jazz expression was created by integrated players. Whites mm-hmm. and blacks get along beautifully on the bandstand.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: I've never seen an exception. And I believe it is the very def- definition of democracy. Freedom within a structure.
0: Mm. Freedom it's within a structure. Discussion. Yeah. That's, that, that's it. Life. I'm yeah. sorry? No, that's it, Jim. And I was just reflecting that the, the, there's an even broader story then um, it fits right into Black History Month is that, you, you know, swing music incorporated a lot of, of um, you know, black faces in the 40, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, and in the 50s, there were black faces and black voices in Memphis, another river town. that they they created rock and roll music as we know it and then in the 60s it's americans and a lot of english boys listening to delta blues you know the same route coming from the same place in the 70s you know you had weather report and a lot and uh, you know steely dan a lot of other influences that that were jazz inspired it were that worked really really well in the 80s You you had really far out people from the jazz world that were uh, doing electronic and tech music Yep, and it goes on and on and on you know rap came from black artists <laughs> and it, and to the world i think if you ask what do you know about america they would say music mm-hmm. well so j- you know, the, the uh
1: the Rolling Stones would, would not have existed if it wasn't for Robert Johnson.
0: Oh, absolutely. Everybody. <laughs> you yeah. know? I, I don't think the Beatles
1: were much influenced by by blues. They were influenced no. by the early early um, examples yeah, of, of the of, Buddy of Holly blues. stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and I don't think They're for early, that reason alone, school. I think that, the um, rolling stones are a far more interesting group than the Beatles for me. Although the yeah. Beatles did beautiful things. I mean, but mm-hmm. but the beautiful things that the Beatles created was actually created by George Martin. So mm-hmm. yeah. Okay.
0: yeah, interestingly, it there was an excellent you know tribute movie to James Brown. And um I can't remember his name. Lead singer for the Rolling Stones. You think you're getting Mick Jagger. All Mick, <laughs> thank you. I know. <laughs> you know, he bankrolled that. He wanted that story told. Oh, yeah. And he and he he has said he and and it was in the movie in a in a very fitting and touching way that you know, they were just another folky rock band from England you uh you know trying trying to make you know find room for themselves in the in the music culture of the time and when they heard james brown on the tammy show mick said that's who we want to be i want to capture that <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and, and, and their stuff got a much harder edge you know mm-hmm. it, Immediately before that, you know, they did Satanic Majesty's Request. They were, you know, they're getting spacey, exploring that area. But but um, you know, you're a bigger Stones fan than I am. It's it's their earthiness and their grittiness and their, you know, not in and you know, genuine soulfulness that makes them believable to me.
1: Earlier, Jim, I mentioned that if I had a soundtrack. To my life, it would be Straight No Chaser, mm-hmm. Thelonious Monk, which we've listened to tonight. And if that wasn't available, it would be the Stones' Brown Sugar.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, um, mm-hmm. that's not something they play at the country club. You know, interestingly, Thelonious Monk was traveling through Delaware and the cops broke his fingers just because he was um, a person of color out at night. Yep. Well, you heard the story too. Oh,
1: well, yeah. You know, Art Blakey had his head bashed in by police. He Had a steel plate in the front of his oh, head. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, that's what that's what counts for his 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 kind of bizarrely sloping forehead. Hmm. Miles Davis was having a cigarette in front of a nightclub on 52nd street where he was performing and the police wouldn't believe that he a black man had had that significant of a standing
0: and they dragged his ass off to jail Hmm. for no reason I have had a sanitized history I need some critical race theory in my life. <laughs>
1: well, you know, listen Listen to the to, to jazz tells a great story about Blacks in America. And, mm-hmm. and because you're a, a jazz star doesn't mean that you have enormous wealth or standing.
2: Right.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys... If, Dizzy Gillespie, who I had the wonderful pleasure of knowing over many years, he, he played 200 seat nightclubs until he died. Wow. He was a wealthy man. Mm. My, Miles probably was. <laughs> hmm. I have a wonderful story about Miles Davis before I sign off. And I won't be I won't be upset at all. Miles, who who I knew pretty well, he had a great sense of humor, which is nothing one could expect from Miles Davis, the guy who who turns it back to his audiences and wore the big shades and did all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he was living, he had his house in the upper east side of New York. And He called Joe Zawano, his former pianist and one of the founders of the Weather Report. Yeah. Who lived in in Pasadena with a beautiful view actually from his living room of the Rose Bowl. But anyway, Miles called Joe and said, Man, you gotta get here now. I need you. I need some help. And so, Joe, being a great guy and wonderful friend, Packed the bag quickly, got onto a, drove to the airport, got onto a,
0: a, a what do they call those, uh, the overnight flights? Oh, the red eyes? Red eyes, yeah. We labor <laughs> organizers know about those. <laughs>
1: he gets to, you know, gets Miles lived up in the upper side. Joe arrives at Miles' front door and the valet opens the door. And Joe's standing and saying, man, Miles call. you've got to see me, Was uh, blah, blah, blah. And the valet says, well, Mr. Davis is in the living room. And he directs Joe to the living room. Miles was sitting there on the floor, surrounded by pieces and parts of a train set, a model train set. And Joe walks and looks at him and says, what's wrong, man? What do you need? He says, the... The uh, the instructions are in German. <laughs> I
0: need. Well, they were in check. He could have brought in the bass player. You know. <laughs> well, they, he had all bases covered there.
1: Uh, yeah, he, but and my and Joe sat there with him. Joe was Austrian, actually, but he spoke like most Eastern Europeans. He, mm-hmm. spoke, he spoke many languages, and they put together the train set and got it running in miles of. Hey man, thanks. And went upstairs to go to sleep. And Joe went back to the airport. Wow! Wow! (laughs) One of my favorite gestures.
0: Yeah, that's
1: um favorite
0: Well, you know, trains fit into Black History Month as well as anything with A. Philip Randolph. (laughs) I knew I knew I would find a way to introduce his name.
2: That was Teen Town by Weather Report. You are listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it on Missoula Community Radio. In the Missoula Valley, that is KFGM 105.5 FM, from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. on Saturdays and at other times. Uh, live streaming at the same time on 105.5kfgm.org and on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana, all spelled out, or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People, Radio By and For the 99%. As usual, lots of news to cover from this week.
0: What's first in our current news, Mark?
4: Yeah,
2: Anything well, just, well, um, <laughs> The pandemic is, how good is that, right? Um, Despite 14 months of vaccines against COVID-19 being available in the US, the pandemic is still with us. According to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, the overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases in the US is now at a steeply falling rate of about 118,000 cases a day, falling from over $800,000, 800,000 cases per day in mid-January, which was by far the highest rate for the U.S. during the entire pandemic. In fact, over 30% of the total COVID cases in the U.S. since the beginning of the pandemic have occurred since the beginning of 2022. And 11% of all the U.S. deaths from COVID has occurred since January 1st of this year. The highest rates of COVID infection in the past two months has been in Israel, which saw infection rate 10 times higher than any previous outbreak there. Israel is considered to be the most vaccinated country in the world. While in Europe, the capital of vaccine mandates and passports, people there suffered since the beginning of the year an infection rate six and a quarter times higher than any previous outbreak there. At over 932,000 deaths, the US is still by far the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. This is equivalent to the population of the city of Columbus, Ohio, one of the largest cities in the United States. According to Kaiser Health News on June 24th, life expectancy across the country plummeted by nearly two years from 2018 to 2020, the largest decline since 1943 when American troops were dying in World War Two, according to the study. But while white Americans lost 1.36 years, black Americans lost 3.25 years and Hispanic Americans lost 3.88 years. Over the two years included in the study, the average loss of life expect- expectancy in the US was nearly nine times greater than the average in 16 other developed nations, whose residents can now expect to live 4.7 Years longer than Americans. Compared with their peers in other countries, Americans died not only in greater numbers but at younger ages during this period. End quote. Today, according to the CDC.gov website, COVID is the third greatest leading cause of deaths in the U.S., almost 10 times deadlier than influenza and pneumonia combined. The U.S. has so far accounted for 16% of all the deaths in the world. And for 19% of the confirmed cases, all was still only 4% of the world population.
0: (sighs) As we have been saying for two and a half years, all was still only 4% of the world's population. Yeah. That is really grim and nothing to be exceptional at.
2: Yeah. It's almost as if... um, Our leaders don't care, uh, almost. Um, So um, in the state, according to the state of Montana COVID-19 website and the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, Montana's had 3,105 deaths from COVID, 74 over the past two weeks. This Montana death total is about equal to that of the population of the towns of Big Sky or Cutbank. As of Friday, Montana is averaging a decreasing rate of about 894 new cases a day. Fully 25% of all Montanans have had or have COVID, and I'm one of them. Uh, one of the. Oh, one kidding. Of the, well, yes, I'm. I'm recovered. Um, and there are currently 328 people hospitalized with the virus down 131 from two weeks ago, but still straining Montana hospitals and healthcare staff. We have been saying this since February 2020, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks when in public spaces indoors, to distance themselves from others as best you can, to frequently wash their hands, and to get the vaccine if we're going to beat this pandemic. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential.
0: Yeah, the COVID thing is so disturbing, and it reminds me of what we went through with um, the Great Canadian Trucker Scare. <laughs> and this and this story is, st- is still evolving, but uh,
2: yeah, it's this it's is a- it's all fallout from really. Said, i mean we've covered this since almost the beginning jim just mm-hmm. from failure of our leadership to act in an appropriate way and um uh, and that continues and so people do what what they think is best and and sometimes that's not the smartest thing um because really where, where's the example being set at this point um every country's had different experiences it's it's
0: been a problem everywhere it's uh it, but not quite you know, the, it's, not
2: quite as bad as in this country though there yeah
0: exactly not quite as bad and um i don't know that in any other country it has become a political issue where you're standing up for your principles and your individuality and your love of freedom by flirting with death and Um, Causing other people to potentially be infected. Yeah, yeah, I think you know, over over nine nine hundred thousand people have died. At some point, people have to say, "Well, do I really want to die? Right? Can I walk this back somehow?" Yeah. And the people that are telling them not to get vaccinated have all been vaccinated. When the former president got COVID, he got the best medical care and he got all kinds of very spendy, you know, treatments that saved his life. Right. Not true for his followers.
2: Well, or like I'm fully vaccinated and I still got COVID. So in some ways, in some ways, this is the problem is that- Mm -hmm. The the old, old the vaccine only strategy it, it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked in Israel, right?
0: Sure. Um, mm-hmm. So, and they're um, the most vaccinated by far. By far, yeah. By That's far. True. Well, the the all, when I when I parse the numbers out, um, I'm I'm thinking that of vaccination rates have a lot to do with mortality. And that and, you you're much less likely to have symptoms that become so severe, yeah, that they kill you.
2: I, I think that's but, I think that's fair enough. But and, but but the vaccine only is still not enough. I mean, because it's still oh, agreed it's built, agreed. still being passed around, still mutating. There's an, there's another variant of Omicron that is they're oh, preliminarily no. thinking it's going to be more serious. Then the first variation of Omicron. So here we go. We're just going to keep going on this uh, merry-go-round until w- when, you know. Um, but, well, so anyway, there might be something a little more hopeful in other news. <laughs> Maybe I'm just so hopeful. So what's
0: next in the news?
2: Well, you know. Anything
0: hopeful? <laughs> uh,
2: well, I don't know you you be the judge um the the corporate news media has done an excellent job in beating the war drums for war with russia um on behalf of those who love forever war in the national security establishment i mean i think (laughs) right and we've covered that last you know Mm -hmm. last show the propaganda is so deep and stinking one needs rubber boots to listen to the corporate media um Yeah, or hobnail rubber boots. Or hobnail rubber boots. There you go. (laughs) Jack boots, yeah. (laughs) Well, the Biden administration not so long ago had said Russia will invade the Ukraine on February 16th. They were very specific about February 16th, which, of course, February 16th has come and gone. Um, And now they're saying it will be tomorrow or after the Olympics or, you know, who knows. Right,
0: right. Well, Mike Lindell will know because he knew what day (laughs) Trump would be. Um, inaugurated I, 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 the I, second I, I, time.
2: Yeah. yeah, but I. But to be fair, I think I think the Democrats or some of the Democrats are more deranged on this issue than the Republicans. I, I think this is uh, a, a Putin derangement syndrome of the of the highest order, um, because Russia, of course, has not done so. And by mm-hmm. the way, like anyone that even does a cursory dig past the kind of crap that's been fed to us on the corporate media, you'll soon discover that yeah, it's probably not in Russia's best interest to invade Ukraine at all. That's probably the no. least likely thing that's going to happen. Exactly. And so, you know, we went through that in our last show too. So I'm taking it's good news that nuclear weapons are not flying in the air at this moment. That's mm-hmm. that's where I'll take my good news from, from this. Although yeah, that well, could that could still happen. Well, I've um, because I don't have
0: anything better to do. I've been following Russian foreign policy ever since glasnost and the evolution, because the rules change, their expectations, and the resource base is different. And um, and since Putin, it's been it's been a border bully boy skirmish with somebody constantly. You know, remember Chechnya and the Armenian issues and that went on and on and on. And then, well, you know, more recently we've had Kazakhstan, which is, and uh, there it was, uh, you know, Russian, try, you know, getting involved because it wanted to secure the, the viability of of a thug and a gangster that, um, that, that suited, you know, Russian interests, yeah. you know, there was, there were issues with Ukraine, you know, 15 years or so, you know, he, I know Paul Maya might be around to tell us about that.
2: Well, and also it, it you know, it sort of parallels what the U- United States has done too. Right. So oh, I know, you know, two wrongs don't make a right here. And oh, I, absolutely. And, and, and I think that, you know, they, they, we, we need to tell these guys to just stand down and, um, you know, get out of the way and stop st- stop threatening nuclear annihilation, because that's what they're right. doing. That's what they're doing.
0: Yeah. And I, and I should have
2: included Syria, because that's a big issue to
0: the Russians. So
2: yeah, and some if, good news now. <laughs> well, yeah, well, there's there is much better news as a follow up to our story about Missoulian Ann Bryant, who had put up her entire teacher's retirement fund for collateral to bail oh. out her son, Brandon, from jail in 2020. And we, we did this story a few weeks ago um, <clears throat> as, he, as he was awaiting trial, which eventually happened in July of 2021. Um, as listeners will remember, the trial lasted three days, but the jury found him not guilty of intimidating and threatening the Missoula City Council in less than three hours. Brandon's mother, Lan Ann, had not received back control over her retirement as of two weeks ago, uh, and because we ran the story, uh, a delegation was organized to demand the money back from the bond squad, bail bondsman. Mm-hmm. Day after that action, Lan Ann got her money back. So that's that ended. Wow! Well. The yeah. power of community radio. We we out of and, this or, world. And organizing, yes. And yeah, indeed. Yes. And that's, yeah, so that's good news. Um, and the other good news I'd say is workers are continuing to organize in Starbucks across the country as of February 3rd, according to the website, more perfect union, 100 Mm -hmm. Starbucks stores are in some part of a process in organizing into a union. So the number is mushrooming. Um, and by the way, any worker from Starbucks or any other low wage workplace
4: mm-hmm. in
2: the Missoula area, Western Montana, who is interested in organizing, you can find support and practical help by calling or emailing the Western Montana Workers Alliance. they are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. You can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at um, I'll spell the it, it's a Gmail account, it's Western spelled out MTWA at gmail.com, or by leaving a message at 406 924 3830. That's Western MTWA at gmail.com, or 406 924 3830.
0: We have more to talk about for Black History Month, don't we, Mark?
2: Oh, yes, we do, Jim. We'll look at some Black leaders of yesterday and today that may not be as well known as Martin Luther King. First, there's Asa Philip Randolph, or A. Philip Randolph, as he's better known, who was born in 1889 and died actually in 1979. He was an American labor unionist and civil rights activist. According to Wikipedia, in 1925, he organized and led the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the first successful African-American led labor union. In the early civil rights movement and the labor movement, Randolph was a prominent voice. His continuous agitation with the support of fellow labor rights activists against racist unfair labor practices eventually led President Franklin D. Roosevelt to issue Executive Order 8802 in 1941, banning discrimination in the defense industries during World War II. The group then successfully pressured President Harry S. Truman to issue executive orders, famous executive orders 9980 and 9981 in 1948, promoting fair employment, anti-discrimination policies in federal government hiring and ending racial segregation in the armed services. Randolph was born and raised in Florida. Although he was able to attain a good education in his community at Cookman Institute, he did not see a future for himself in the discriminatory Jim Crow era South and moved to New York City just before the Great Migration. There, he became convinced that overcoming racism required collective action, and he was drawn to socialism and workers' rights. He unsuccessfully ran for state office on the Socialist Ticket in the early 20s, but found more success in organizing for African-American workers' rights. In 1963, Randolph was the head of the March on Washington, which was organized by another famous Black uh, leader who we can cover some other time, Bayard Rustin, Mm -hmm. um, at which... And the March on Washington was one at which Martin Luther King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. Randolph inspired the Freedom Budget, sometimes called the Randolph Freedom Budget, which aimed to deal with the economic problems facing the Black community. It was published by the Randolph Institute in January 1967 as a Freedom Budget for All Americans.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not familiar with the freedom budget for all Americans. That that's intriguing.
2: Yeah, you any more details? Yeah, I do and it's and it, it will kind of evolve into something you have heard of. But so again mm-hmm. from Wikipedia, writing 50 years later in the Nation magazine, John Nichols listed as the freedom budget for all Americans goals as the abolition of poverty, guaranteed full employment, fair prices for farmers, fair wages for workers, housing and health care for all, the establishment of progressive tax and fiscal policies that respected the needs of working families," end quote. Randolph worked with Bayard Rustin, again, and Martin Luther King on the Freedom Budget document. He was determined to win the full and final triumph of the civil rights movement, to be achieved by going beyond civil rights, linking the goal of racial justice with the goal of economic justice for all people in the United States, and doing so by rallying massive segments of the 99% of the American people <laughs> in a powerful democratic oh. and moral crusade. Catchy label. I like that. Yeah, and this was in the 60s, right? Um, yes. It, it faltered in Congress, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, though, and this is Wikipedia. Though the freedom budget failed, its policy proposals influenced King's later economic justice efforts. The Freedom Budget had proposed a job guarantee for everyone ready and willing to work, a guaranteed income for those unable to work or those who should not be working, and a living wage to lift the working poor out of poverty. These policies provided the cornerstones for King's Poor People's Campaign, end quote.
0: Yeah, powerful stuff. It's certainly time. Um, Got another person in your rolodex you want to highlight
2: yes yeah flipping through i come to uh the letter t so we have rosina harvey tucker uh, born in 1881 and she died in 1987 rosina harvey tucker one of nine children was born in northwest washington dc her parents leroy and henrietta harvey were enslaved in virginia Despite the harsh realities of slavery, her father taught himself to read and write. After emancipation, her parents moved to Washington. At age 36, she met uh, Berthea J. Tucker, known as B.J. Tucker. They married and moved into a house on 7th Street near Gallaudet College, where she remained for the rest of her life. B.J. Tucker was a Pullman porter and a founding member of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters.
4: Mm -hmm. organizing
2: porters was difficult because the men were always on the road working long hours porters were fired by the company for union activities fear of retaliation was real rosina founded and was elected secretary treasurer of the women's economic council a women's auxiliary of the union she worked closely with a philip randolph in establishing the brotherhood Uh, She said, quote, we furnished a great deal of the money in the beginning that was basic to the struggle to organize by giving parties, dances, dinners, any way we could, she said. Lots of men lost their jobs, but the women held secret meetings. End quote. Rosina visited the homes of hundreds of porters in the D.C. area. With no full-time union staff, she collected dues, distributed the union newspaper, The Black Worker and encouraged the wives of Pullman Porters to become active. Her reputation as an organizer grew. In 1963, she helped organize the March on Washington along with A. Philip Randolph and others. She assisted the local labor movement by helping to organize laundry workers, domestic workers, hotel and restaurant workers, teachers and red caps at Union Station with its women's auxiliary, the Porter's Union grew in power and influence advocating for an end to racism and the passage of civil rights legislation. In 1978, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters merged with the Brotherhood of Railway and Airline Clerks. In Virginia, at the First Baptist Church in Lexington, Rosina played classical pieces, musical pieces, accompanying her husband who recited poetry and told stories. This is kind of interesting. She worked, sure as a mu- she worked as a music teacher and became the organist for the Liberty Baptist Church in Foggy Bottom, D.C. No. <laughs> Home of the State Department. <laughs> That's it. Uh, inspired by the Viennese waltz, she composed the Rio Grande waltzes um, in 1902, oh. as a matter of fact. According <laughs> to Rain- Raina Crumveda, a researcher at the American Music Research Center at the University of Colorado, Rosina chose to compose a Romantic-era waltz because, quote, during the 1900s, the Black community was striving to show more European sophistication in their art, end quote. While she was Secretary-Treasurer of the Brotherhood's Auxiliary, she wrote and published in 1939 the anthem, Marching Together. Rosina Tucker lived to be 105. Once a young man asked her, what was it like in your day? She replied, this is my day. <laughs> That's point. the
0: greatest answer.
2: Yeah, yeah, that is the greatest answer. So she, she um, sounds, she, she would be someone worth meeting. I'm sure. Um, yes.
0: Always busy, always pushing, pushing the envelope everywhere she could. That's pretty cool.
4: Yeah.
6: retired Pullman porters still meet even today. These were the men who worked on the Pullman railroad cars, the sleeping cars and lounge cars. I can tell you that these retired porters are the last in a long line of men in this country. They represent 100 years of history, stretching from the days of slavery to the civil rights movement of today. George Pullman started the Pullman Palace Car Company just after the Civil War. And he became one of the richest and most powerful companies in america pullman was a shrewd businessman he not only built the cars he also maintained ownership of them and hired the men to provide service to the passengers they used to call the cars hotels on wheels because they were so elegant, and of course The service was very elegant. The conductors who sold and collected tickets were always white men. But the personal service, which is what really made the Pullman Company famous, was provided by black men. Of course, in the early days, these men were former slaves. The porter had to do everything. He greeted passengers, carried baggage, made up the sleeping birds, tidied up the cars, served food and drinks, shined shoes, and had to be available night and day to wait on the passengers. For all this, the Pullman Company paid the porter a very small salary. He had to depend on tips from the passengers to make a living. By the 1920s, Pullman employed more black workers than any other company in the United States. And the symbol of this elegant service that the company was selling was the humble Pullman Porter.
2: This was the introduction of the documentary Miles of Smiles Years of Struggle, the story of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, narrated by Rosina Tucker. Now, I'll spin the Rolodex again and see what comes up. All right. So, we're coming up to this is our last one. It's right. R. Um, so we're no threat to Wheel of
0: Fortune. Yes, we're, absolutely. We won't not. get syndicated.
2: <laughs> There's, you're, you're not going to get a, a vacation to Bermuda, Jim. <laughs> um, the, uh, um, so and, and actually, there are so many people to highlight, but um, we're going to end with someone current, um, uh, Adolf Reed Jr., okay? So according to Wikipedia, Reed was born January 14th, 1947, and is an American professor emeritus, which means he's retired of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, specializing in studies of issues of racism in U.S. politics. He has taught at Yale Northwestern and the New School for Social Research, and he has written on racial and economic inequality. He is a contributing editor to The New Republic and has been a frequent contributor to The Progressive, The Nation, and other left-wing publications. He is also a founding member of the U.S. Labor Party, which is pretty much non-existent now. Um, so uh, Reed, who's one of, who's always been one of my favorite intellectuals for decades, really, um, recently wrote this, and we'll close on this. If the COVID-19 pandemic and the killing of George Floyd are supposed to have made visible inequalities that no one had seen, the death rates both from the virus and at the hands of the police, have been met with analyses that repeat what everyone has always said. First, in the diagnosis of what's produced those inequalities, and second, in the recommendation for eliminating them. The problem, thought to be so ingrained in American life that it's sometimes called America's original sin, is racism. The solution is anti-racism. And the confidence in both the diagnosis and the cure is so high that it's produced action everywhere from Black Lives Matter protesting the streets to the Mississippi legislature voting to take down its flag to corporate boardrooms, pledging literally billions of dollars, all with the admirable admirable goal of ending white supremacy. All this takes place, of course, against the backdrop of an economy that for white people as well as for black, has become more and more unequal over the last half century. The Gini index, which is a measure of inequality in which zero means we all have the same, while one means one person has everything, the Gini index has gone from 0.397 in 1967 in the US to 0.485 today. That's just crazy. Yes, it's gotten I mean, it's much this,
0: worse, you know, because <clears throat> that's a huge statistical base.
2: It, it so
0: there are tens of millions of people that are that are directly affected by that in an adverse way. Right, right. You know, how, I, I how, used zini coefficients all the time in my work. They're a marvelous tool for yes. looking at very complex things and being able to get your hands wrapped around it. Right, right. And a jump like that of ten percent, nearly ten percent, is. yeah well actually that shows a society that's about to roll over and die
2: it's it's uh yeah i mean it's um you know uh reed contrasts this the worst current score in europe is basically what ours was in 1967 you know Mm -hmm. 0.4 and reed continues and most of the people at least on the left who worry about racial disparity no doubt believe that inequality between classes is a problem too Indeed, they may well believe that attacking racism is also a step in the direction of attacking the gap between the top decile of American wealth and everybody else, but they are mistaken. In fact, not only will a focus on the effort to eliminate racial disparities not take us in the direction of a more equal society, it isn't even the best way of eliminating racial disparities themselves. Mm-hmm. If the objective is to eliminate Black poverty rather than simply to benefit the upper classes, we believe the diagnosis of racism is wrong, and the cure of anti-racism won't work. Racism is real, and anti-racism is both admirable and necessary. But extent racism isn't what principally produces our inequality, and anti-racism won't eliminate it. And because racism is not the principal source of inequality today, anti-racism, anti-racism functions more as a misdirection that justifies inequality than a strategy for eliminating it, end quote. That's pretty controversial words coming from. Yeah, the, uh, uh, and, and I, I was made
0: a little uncomfortable by reading that. Does it, uh, you know, it challenges some of the shibboleths I just hung up in the closet and presumed were going to be constant and unvarying. So, uh, yeah, that's a good place to um, say this will be enough. This is more, this is more yes. than you can handle. Yeah, I, I just noted that, you know, Keisha Baines, who came up in the discussion early on, yeah, is, uh, is at University of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to see people that are pushing the envelope in Pennsylvania because they're, you know, it could be another really interesting election there and they're trying really hard to jerk with, you know, voting rules. Yeah. I I noticed of all places, the Missoulian (laughs) ran an AP story about John Fetterman going out on the hustings in Pennsylvania and uh, how and how challenged he felt so it's funny how it all comes you know all the pieces fit together if you take the time to you know put put all the puzzle stuff on the top of the table
2: and and unfortunately for today we are out of time oh (laughs) yes i know i know well profound as i'm gonna be able to get this (laughs) (laughs) well say save that for the next show i know Um, Um, Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs that we air on the air. Just go to the website at 105.5kfgm.org and you can make it there. Everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thanks. Please join us every week. On Voice of the People, radio by and for the
5: 99%. It's coming to America first. The cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change. And it's here they got the spiritual thirst. It's here the family's broken and it's here the lonely say That the heart has got to open in a fundamental way Democracy is coming to the U.S.A.